This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today's topic is medical ethics. Medical ethics is not new. It actually dates back many centuries. In fact, there's evidence that this topic dates back to medieval times. The first code of medical ethics was published in the 5th century, but more recently the American Medical Association adopted its first code of ethics in the mid-1800s. Our current framework for medical ethics is based on four guiding principles, including respect for autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. With me today is Dr. John Tilbert, a consultant in the Division of General Internal Medicine with a joint appointment in the Division of Healthcare Policy and Research here at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Welcome, John. Thanks, Daryl. John, can you help us to understand medical ethics and how we use it in our day-to-day practice? Sure. Well, we teach the medical ethics principles in medical school. Those are pretty straightforward. Beneficence, non-maleficence, autonomy, and justice. But applying those in everyday practice gets a little bit sticky. So I lead a team at Mayo Clinic who does ethics consultation, mostly in the hospital, sometimes in the outpatient setting. And when we're called in, it's usually when things are sticky, when things are messy, complicated. And we're often asked to sort out with teams what are permissible courses of action, what are our options, and what aren't our options in some cases. I know, based on my experience, some of the ethical dilemmas that we get into in our practice are probably some of the most difficult situations we face. Yeah, I think they're some of the most memorable ones because sometimes they're heart-wrenching, sometimes they're not clear, and we're always searching for clarity in what it means to respect the patient's best interest, and it's not always clear. Right, and in many cases, we're dealing with more than just the patient. We're dealing with family members, friends, other relatives, which makes it even more complicated. Absolutely. The things that make it complicated are the things that make healthcare enriching, um, but also not always straightforward. Right. Well, we're going to break a bit with tradition for our podcasts in our discussion of medical ethics. Uh, Let's discuss ethics by reviewing a few cases where the focus related to a very uh, complex ethical issue. Here's our first case, and this theme is on surrogate decision-making. The patient is an elderly, frail nursing home resident with advanced dementia. This patient is capable of feeding himself, but requires assistance with all other activities of daily living. He no longer recognizes family members or friends. Unfortunately, this patient never completed any advanced directives, and the geographically closest relative is a daughter who lives in town and who visits her, free, her mother frequently. She stated that no aggressive measures should be taken to prolong her mother's life in the event of a serious illness. And as often happens, the patient uh, develops a pneumonia, which appears to be life-threatening. The daughter indicates that no antibiotics be started and the patient not be hospitalized but remain in the nursing home. She requests no resuscitation measures be undertaken. However, comfort measures should be provided to her mother. Now, at the same time, the nursing home receives a call from the patient's oldest son, 
who has not really been involved significantly in the patient's day-to-day -day care, but he states that his um, mother should be hospitalized immediately and treated aggressively to manage her illness. So John, how can we use the principles of medical ethics to help us deal with a conflict uh, such as this? It's a good question, Daryl. Usually what we try to do as a, a consult team is make sure that we are helping the team sort out what's going on. Clearly in a case like this, these are pretty common cases, there is a, a nearby helpful child trying to help someone who does not have capacity to make their own medical decisions. There's also a distant child who has some stake in helping a parent, although perhaps we might intuitively think a different sort of stake. And all of these things have to be accounted for in the broader picture of the medical facts, the patient's quality of life, our best guess of the patient's preferences, which is sometimes the most difficult thing to guess, and then other contextual features. For instance, that the patient's in a nursing home or living situations that may limit certain kinds of care options. All those things have to be in a, taken into account in order for us to really apply those ethical principles we were talking about. The other thing I would say about this case is it's a great illustration of the way in which ethics interacts with the law. In most cases, it's, in my experience, law and ethics line up pretty well for the most part. There are occasions when they clash, but it's important to know where you're practicing in order to know what the potential right answers are for this kind of a case. For instance, most states have a next of kin hierarchy in their statutes. Under those circumstances, when a patient is not designated a surrogate decision maker for themselves, there's a hierarchy from spouse to closest children to extended kin to delineate who is in the best position to make a decision for the patient. We live in Minnesota. Minnesota doesn't have such a statute. So, one consideration in this case is who has a say in the care of this patient when the patient can't speak for themselves. And if this were a Minnesota case, we might get a different answer than, say, if we were in Arizona or Florida or Wisconsin in terms of what the law will allow and who can be involved in the care of and the decision-making for the patient. I, I made this case intentionally difficult for that reason. I mean, I did geriatrics for 19 years, and this is a common situation that I came across. Uh, and in this case, we have the eldest son who has had little to do with his mother's care and a younger sibling who has had extensive involvement in her mother's care. So do you go by the first child, or do you go by the one who is, uh, seems to know her mother the best? Well, I'll give you a standard sort of answer that we would give in Minnesota, at least as a point of conversation. In Minnesota, because we don't designate a hierarchy, and if, in fact, this patient did not have expressed wishes about who could make decisions on, on their behalf, then it's incumbent on all family members to collaborate, to come to either a consensus or to agree to disagree and appoint one of those people to be the lead person, either of which are acceptable. Right. 
that's messy, but that's the way Minnesota works. And in some ways, you could see under certain circumstances where that's actually a, a blessing too. Well, and I think also from a case like this, you know this is going to happen at some point. This patient is going to become ill, and we can potentially prevent this ahead of time by meeting with the family, uh, encouraging one spokesperson for the family, identifying who that person is, and asking them to come to a consensus regarding what they want for their mother, and also to get our patients to fill out advanced directives before they become uh, uh, cognitively uh, incompetent to do so. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Daryl. Having something on paper that says, these are my go-to people when I can't speak for myself is probably the best thing anybody can do in terms of their future self's well-being. Unfortunately, the medical system will just keep throwing interventions at people regardless of their sentient state until they're just just a beating heart in a corpse, unless the patient can give them direction either themselves or through their appointed uh, uh, spokesperson. Right. And these cases always seem to come to fruition, usually on a Friday or Saturday night, uh, difficult to reach family members. So again, as, as you mentioned, getting as much of this out in the open ahead of time and discussing all potential things that could happen and coming up with a plan uh, really could pay off later to make things a lot simpler for everybody. I think so. And I think we're seeing some improvements in the broader culture and in the policy world about a willingness to talk about death and end-of-life care and even some policy initiatives with Medicare so that they'll actually pay for doctors to sit down and have a conversation with patients. Very important. Which I think is a pretty healthy thing. Yeah. Mayo Clinic offers medical education conferences at locations around the country and around the globe. Learn from medical experts and network with colleagues at exciting destinations. Plan your next CME course by visiting ce.mayo.edu. All right, let's tackle one more case. And this theme here is a uh, complex hospital discharge and limits of professional responsibility. The patient is a 38-year-old with type 1 diabetes, a schizoaffective disorder, and end-stage renal disease. He keeps coming back to the hospital seven times in the past three months with bloodstream infections and intermittent intoxication. He's mean to the staff and occasionally violent in the hospital. The patient has been determined to be legally competent but the team questions his judgment and is convinced he will return to the hospital. After treating his most recent infection, the team believes he is clinically ready for discharge, but the social workers are concerned about discharging him to a setting where he will come right back. Ideally, they would send him to an assisted living community three counties away, but there's a one-month wait to get into that facility. The team is convinced that if he is discharged, he will come right back, and they don't think it's right that he take up a hospital bed for a month waiting for a more optimal discharge destination. They want to know what is their extent of responsibility to get this patient to an optimal setting versus an acceptable setting for discharge. Difficult situation. Yeah, it is. Hospital care is never tidy, and this case is really a composite of several cases that we've encountered in the last several years. Sometimes we get called by social workers or 
medical bed officers saying, we're stuck. We don't know what to do about this patient, and we don't know if we've done enough. Can we let this person just be discharged? And the answers are never clear. (laughs) Usually what we'll do in these kinds of circumstances is really offer a degree of due process about how well has the team engaged the resources available to work toward the patient's best interest, recognizing that there are real-world constraints within which anybody can discharge their obligations. It's not really the medical team's job to determine how many assisted living, appropriate halfway house-type facilities exist in the universe. It's their job to run a hospital and do their best for the patients when they need to be there. So we often will uh, try to describe for the team what we think are a range of possible options, work with social workers, and see if there are any other options out there, and really outline for them what we think are the options that clearly are not permissible within the bounds of their professional obligation, and then free them and support them to exercise their obligations within the constraints of what's possible uh, by reiterating and supporting their really hard work. So this is this is another Friday afternoon kind of uh, scenario that's pretty common. And a lot of times teams just feel bad that they're not doing enough. And we come in to try to help them and slow down enough to, to do some due diligence and double check that they've thought through all the possible options so that they can really rest comfor- comfortably in their conscience knowing that they've done their best for the patient in a t- tough situation. We've been talking about medical ethics with Dr. John Tilbert, a consultant in the Division of General Internal Medicine here at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Thank you so much for joining us, John, and uh, discussing these very uh, complex issues. Now, from the vast amount of mail we've received, many of you have asked how you can experience Mayo Clinic medical education firsthand. Well, you can see our full catalog of live and online CME courses at ce.mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Otherwise, stay healthy and see you next week.